If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Genesis chapter 17? If you do not, there are some blue Bibles in the pews, and it's on page 13. We started in Genesis last January, and we have made it to page 13 of the Bible. At this rate, we're, we're moving at a good click. I'd like to make a comment before I read this passage, and that is that this is a long passage. It's 27 verses. It's a long 27 verses. And so for those of you who time my sermon, this does not count toward my sermon length. Okay? We're going to read Genesis chapter 17 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Esau. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring 
after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Esau, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a text. In length and content, but what an important text we have this morning. Because I want you to think of when maybe you've been watching a show. You've been thoroughly enjoying this show. You've been taken captive by it, by all its twists and turns, new characters coming in, people dying, all kinds of crazy things you never thought were going to happen. And all of a sudden, as time's been flying by, the last frame just freezes. And it says, to be continued. The worst feeling when you're watching a show and you're absolutely in love with it. There's no resolution, there's no conclusion, and you're just left with all of these questions. What's going to happen? Where's this going? That's what we've been seeing really through all of Genesis, but especially in these last few chapters. Genesis 15 ends, and the readers are left wondering... How are you going to make this old, childless man have as many kids as the stars? How is that going to happen? To be continued. And then chapter 16 opens up. And talk about a, twa- a, a, a plot twist. The man who has faith, who seems now to be the most passive man, maybe the second most passive man in all of history. Right? And now... Through his and his wife's scheming, there is a child in the mix. And so now you're wondering, is this child, Ishmael, the child of promise? What about Sarai? What about your faith, Abram? It sure did seem like you trusted your wife more than you trusted God. To be continued. These last two chapters have been leaving us wondering, where's the answer? Who's this child? What about Sarah? What about Abram's faith? What about this covenant? Genesis 17, then, is the sequel. It's the opening, and it's a a lot of resolution for this little mini-series, if you will, in Genesis 15 through 17. We find many of our answers to our questions. And I want to be upfront with you all this morning. In this chapter, there's a lot to talk about. There is a lot to talk about, and I only have 90 minutes, so I'm not going to get to all of it. So this morning, what you need 
after this morning is a sequel, which community group, which meets on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., is a great option to come and get some resolution. But this morning, in Genesis 17, what we're going to focus on is a big picture, a big picture. And from this, what I want us to see is that our faith is in the unmatched God and his unbelievable promises, which makes possible our unreserved obedience. That's what I want us to leave Genesis 17 with. Our faith is in the unmatched God and his unbelievable promises, which makes possible our unreserved obedience. As we explore the text this morning, we're going to jump around quite a bit. It's not going to be our usual going through the text in order. So I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We won't be able to have the text on the screen as we go. But for a basic outline, if you're a note taker, a basic outline, we're going to have three major ideas, three headers we're going to observe this morning. First, God's unbelievable promises. Second, the covenant's uncomfortable sign. And third, Abraham's unreserved obedience. God's unbelievable promises, the covenant's uncomfortable sign, and Abraham's unreserved obedience. So, let's look at God's unbelievable promises. As I've said, this is a sequel. This text is a sequel. And what this means is that this is not a new covenant with Abram. In verses 1 to 2, read those verses with me. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Where the text says that I may make my covenant, that word is not the word that's used in Genesis 15 or Exodus 24 or Jeremiah 31, where God's making a new covenant. Instead, this word's different, and it's important to note, because what it means is it's a link. It means I will establish or I will confirm my covenant with you, okay? So it's linking this covenant, this scene, with Genesis 15, where the covenant was made, okay? That's really important for us to get, because what that means is that there is one covenant between God and Abraham, and that all these promises are not different, they're not new, they're just more specific of what God has already been promising to Abram. There's a growing specificity of the promises, actually all the way since Genesis 12. So to see the promises, what we're going to do is we're going to break them into three categories. Land, offspring, and blessing. Land, offspring, and blessing. For land, look at verse 8. God says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So in Genesis 12, what did the Lord promise to give to Abram? He says, go, I will make you into a nation. What do nations need? Land. So there's an implication of land. And then in Genesis 15, God says, I'm going to give you the land of these various peoples. But now here in Genesis 17, the growing specificity, 
I am going to give to you the land of Canaan exactly. There's a precise, defined place, and it will be an everlasting possession. Okay? Growing specificity. Not only is the land promised more precise, but God has further promised or clarified the promise of the offspring. Right? First, in verse 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So it's not just an offspring. It's not just lots of offspring, as many as the stars. Now it's kings, plural. There will be kings in your offspring, and your offspring will be kings. And who will be the mother of these kings? Look at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, by Sarai, or Sarah. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then, of course, Abraham hears this, and what's he going to do? What? Really? He laughs. Like, really? This is, this is amazing, unbelievable, and almost literally unbelievable. And what about Ishmael? But then in verse 19, God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac or Esau. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So God, in this chapter, makes it abundantly clear. Who's this child going to come from? Sarah. Abraham, get it through your head. It will be from your wife, Sarah. And how are you going to know this? I'm going to give her a new name so that every time you hear her name, every time you think of her, every time you talk to her, it's Sarah. And you remember that's the name the Lord gave me when he told me it's through her. The name Sarah from Sarah doesn't actually mean a, a whole lot different, but it does mean princess. And what comes from princesses? Who births? What is the child of a princess? A king. God is saying, your name will carry what you do, and Abram, you will remember that it's the one whom I named. It is Sarah. That Isaac will come. And more specificity, it's not just an offspring, it's not just a king, he gets the name. Before conception, there's a name. You can't be more specific than that. Also, it's going to be within the next year. Like, there's so much more detail about this offspring. It will be Isaac from Sarah, and he will be and lead to kings. And finally, the promise of blessing. I know there's a lot of promises, a lot of jumping around. Thank you for hanging with me. Finally, the promise of blessing. This is specifically the promise of blessing the nations. And we get more clarity on it. Look at verses four and five. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So interestingly enough, 
The topic of being a blessing to the nations is not a topic that Abram's been too concerned about since Genesis 12. What's his constant question? Where's the offspring? Where's the child? But yet, here we see that God's emphasis is that it is going to be a child, but it's a child, and the blessing is not just, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a son, or you're going to be the father of a king. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And so God renames him from Abram to Abraham, and with that, Pastor Dan says, finally, no more trying to remember which name to say, but God renames him from Abram to Abraham to note You will be a father of a multitude of nations, not just an offspring, not just kings, but the nations. So he's promising that it will be through Abraham and his covenant that all the nations, or at least a multitude of nations, are blessed. And that blessing is not just a they'll be happy or they'll receive some good gifts, it's that he's going to be their father. He's going to be their father. They're not going to be the others anymore. They're going to be sons and daughters of Abraham. And that's important because who is this covenant with? Abraham, Isaac, and his offspring. So we're seeing all these promises are coming together here. There's land, there's this child, which will be through Sarah. There's a new relationship and how the blessing will look with the nations. It will be bringing them into Abraham's family, who is the reception or who receives the covenant. And, and, the last clarity we get is that we actually see what the ultimate goal of all of this is. For the first time, In Scripture, not only do we see it, it was exemplified earlier in Scripture, but for the first time is it promised from the mouth of God what the goal of these promises is. Look at verse 7. God explains he will establish this covenant with Abraham and his offspring. Why? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then again in verse 8, why the covenant promises in the possession of the land forever? To be their God. The purpose, the purpose clause in these sentences, in these promises, the goal of the covenant, the end, is not that just Abraham gets offspring or land or things, but that he gets God. The goal of the covenant is to bring him into relationship with God, to have God and to be God's and to be with God. And how long is this relationship going to last? How long is this relationship going to go? And what can thwart this? Nothing, because it's a forever covenant. It's an everlasting covenant, one that God has made and sealed himself back in Genesis 15. Friends, this is why these promises, all of them, are truly unbelievable These are unbelievable promises in both senses of the word. First of all, it's amazing. It's amazing that God would make such a promise and seal it with Abram for no other reason than he wanted to. He wanted to. He simply called this moon worshiper out of Ur and gives to him a promise to be with him and for him to be his forever. That's amazing. 
And it's unbelievable because from a humanly perspective, none of this is possible. Alistair Begg has a funny illustration. He says, put yourself in Abram's sandals for a second. So think of this from Abram's perspective, right? He's a foreigner from Ur in Canaan. There's laws in Canaan. They don't like nomadic shepherds and nomadic merchants, so you can't actually purchase land in Canaan. Abram, or Abraham now, is 99 years old. And how old is Sarah? 90. Childbearing is not an option. Abram is a sinner, and we've seen it. We saw it in the last chapter, and God is holy who cast out Adam and Eve for their sin. This is impossible from a, humanly, from a human's perspective. So how can this become possible? It can't be by human means. It can't be by human power. But who's making the promise? Look at verse one. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. God reveals himself in a unique and new way in this chapter. I am God Almighty. He does it when he is confirming his unbelievable promises with Abraham. And outside of this text, it almost is always used in the same context. Whenever the person who hears God Almighty is in a situation, in circumstances, where it seems it's impossible for things to not go how they see them going, or it's impossible for God's promises to come to pass. It's used to remind those who see their circumstances and realize this can't be. When they say, I can't see how these promises will come to pass. And in those instances, we hear Scripture say, yes, your God has made unbelievable promises. But he is the God Almighty. He is the unmatched God who can make and keep the unbelievable promises. Friends, there is no power, there is no circumstance, there is no hurdle, there is nothing that stops, slows, or thwarts God's promises. That's why in verse 5 he says, I have made you. Abram still doesn't have any kids through Sarah. And God says, I have made you a father of, the, of a multitude of nations. It's already done. It's so sure because it's the God who is the God Almighty who's making this promise. This is what Paul is picking up in Romans. Our salvation, which is unbelievable. It's amazing. And it can't be by our own might. It has to be by Christ and his coming back from the dead. It's so sure that Paul says we have been justified. We have been glorified. Why? Because God has said so. And he is the unmatched God. He is God Almighty. And he can make the unbelievable come to pass. That's what he does. He's saying to Abram, your wife is barren and you're 90 years old? Not a problem. Father of a multitude of nations. Just remember that. Every time someone talks to you, you're the father of a multitude of nations. Because I've said so. Because God Almighty has said so. Abraham's faith and our faith doesn't rest upon the hope that we can make or the hope that we can fully understand or the hope that we know that our power can make come to pass. 
our faith rests upon the unmatched God and his unbelievable promises. We know that these promises are true and will come to pass because of the God who's made them. He has said, I am God Almighty. So Christian, do you sometimes think or are you told that your faith is in the impossible? That considering things from your perspective, there's no way. Well, you're in good company. Because so is Abraham's. But we, like Abraham, as, as Paul explains in Romans 4, we hope against hope. We don't hope in what we see and we know and we can make come to pass. We hope in what God does promise and has kept. We hope against hope because we hope in God Almighty. Our God is the unmatched God who has made these unbelievable promises that we can be with him and he will be our God forever. And he has made them and he has kept them. So we can rest upon that. And friends, our faith must rest upon our unmatched God and his unbelievable promises. Because going through life is not always easy. But there's often hardship. And sometimes this hardship must not only be gone through, but taken upon. Not just suffered, but faced. And that uncomfortable aspect of our faith is just what we see next for Abraham. We see the uncomfortable sign of the covenant, the covenant's uncomfortable sign. So with this confirmation of the covenant between Abraham and God, we see three instructions. I'm going to call them instructions, or maybe think of them as expectations, okay? These are expectations. First, in verses 1 to 2, walk before me and be blameless. The phrase, walk before me, is used both of God and his people throughout the Old Testament. Right? When God walks before his people, think of Exodus, he's guiding them. But then later in Scripture, speaking to David and then speaking to Solomon, they are expected to walk before the Lord. And how do they do that? Well, they do it by looking back to God for guidance. It's a picture of a child holding the hand of their father. Right? When God walks before his child, he's guiding them in where he's going. And when his people walk before him, they're looking back and saying, is it here, Father? Is this where I'm supposed to go? It's looking to him, to his revealed word on what they're to do and where they are to go. And to be blameless. This is not a new idea. We saw this in our first series in Genesis. Noah was considered blameless. There's an ethical or a moral purity in this idea, a separation from all the wickedness around and being different or set apart regarding the ethical and moral purity of the blameless. It's not just looking to the way of the Lord, which is walking before him, but it's taking every step and only the steps he says to take to be blameless. There's a relationship here. As you walk before the Lord, it is a path of being blameless. So what God has done is he says, out, out, out of the gate to Abraham, look to me for what you're to do and follow my direction as I've given it. This is what he's prefacing 
this uncomfortable sign with, which is the third instruction. Keep my covenant. He says, keep my covenant, which is done by receiving the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Now this is the heart of the chapter, literally. The way Moses writes this chapter is, we talk about chiasms, right? How it's parallels moving into a single point. This is the middle. And so we're going to spend some time trying to understand this part of the passage in particular. To do that, we're going to ask two questions. First question, what is the sign? We're supposed to keep the covenant by keeping this sign. Well, what is a sign? In verse 11, God says it's a sign of the covenant. What does that mean? Well, essentially, it's a memorial. It's a mark that brings to mind an event or a promise. So think of the rainbow. It's the sign of the covenant with Noah to remind God and to remind man. The blood on the doorpost was a sign during the Passover. The Sabbath was a sign to Israel to remind them of the law. These are marks or they're markers that stop or interrupt the day-to-day and they remind you of something. They're marks of remembrance. It's to cause Abraham and all of his offspring to remember the covenant and the promises. So that's what the sign does. It brings to mind. But why does the sign have to be this? Why is the sign circumcision? Well, consider the promise. What's the promise of the covenant? The main promise Abraham has been concerned about and tried to get on his own terms an offspring. The promise is an offspring, a child. That's been Abraham's chief concern. But circumcision then is a cutting of the body that intentionally and symbolically endangers that very offspring. It endangers it symbolically. Circumcision is a symbolic act of jeopardizing the possibility of offspring. It's saying It will not be by me. It will not be by my plan. It will not be by my power. It will be by God's promise that this promise comes to pass. This is really the heart of circumcision itself, right? Because it's a cutting off of the self-dependence and the self-reliance of Abraham. It will not be by me, God. It will be by you, This is a huge deal because we just read Genesis 16 and we saw him go after his own plan, his own way, by his own power. But God's saying, no, this covenant is not by your power or your plan, but it's by mine. And to remember that, you're going to symbolically remove your power. And friends, if you're not convinced that this requires Abraham to have a heart that's fully trusting on God, just ask yourself, how old is Abraham right now? 99 years old. For this to be done to a 99-year-old man or any grown man, how easy do you think that's going to be? I'm not trying to be funny or crude, or, but I'm trying to be real. This is not an easy sign. It requires a heart that is fully trusting and looking to and dependent upon the promises of God. 
It's truly saying, it cannot be by me. I'm going to face this uncomfortable obedience because I trust that you will make your promises so. And you can. For Abraham to receive this mark, to keep this covenant, he has to have a true faith. Not an easy believism, not an intellectual assent, but a true, unshakable faith in God's plan, promise, and power. Faith that he is God Almighty. That he, God Almighty, has the power to make these unbelievable promises come to pass. That he, God Almighty, has the power to make this wandering, wayward man walk before him. That he, God Almighty, has the power to make this sinner blameless. This uncomfortable obedience, it marks, it reveals a heart fully trusting upon the Lord and all of his promises. That's why it's this sign. And this is the whole point. And it always was the point of circumcision. Right? It's not intended to just be a mark to distinguish one people group from other people groups. Other people groups practiced this right in different ways and at different times in life, but it doesn't necessarily distinguish you from other peoples. It's meant to show an inward change, an inward mark, a heart that is fully dependent upon the Lord, a heart that was completely loving of the Lord, a heart that was solely seeking the way of the Lord, one who was walking before the Lord and blameless. That's what this mark was always meant to show. It was a mark so that when Abraham and his sons would see it, they would remember. They'd remember who their God was. They'd remember the promises he had given. And they remember it's by him and his promises this covenant is held, kept, and will come to pass. It's to remember that and to show a heart's dependence upon that. But what do we know to be true from Genesis 17 forward? What do we know to be true? Was that heart posture regular? Was that heart posture what we see throughout Scripture? No. So what's the point of these unbelievable promises if no one can have them because no one's truly circumcised? How are his offspring going to be in the covenant if they're not truly circumcised? How are the nations going to be in the covenant if they're outside, and how do they become circumcised? Remember who made the covenant? God did. Who sealed the covenant? God did. It's by the power, plan, and promise of God that this covenant stands. And it's actually through these promises, through these unbelievable promises, that the promise of the offspring that the circumcision is truly done that the curse for uncircumcision is taken and true circumcision is given. What God tells us through Paul in Colossians 2, he says, in him, speaking about Jesus, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, one that cannot be seen, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You have been made circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. That's his point. Christ's circumcision then was his becoming the uncircumcision. The curse is you will be cut off. It was his taking on the curse of the uncircumcision 
being cut off from God, facing the judgment of God, receiving the end of that judgment, which is death. He was cut off so that we are not. He was, circ- he was made the uncircumcision so we can be made the circumcision. He was pushed away so we can be brought near. And going back to Colossians 2, we who were dead in our trespasses, or he's saying you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross is Christ's circumcision. It's through the cross, his being cut off, that we receive the true circumcision that Abraham is showing here. The heart posture, the heart change that's required to be in the covenant. And through this circumcision, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. But not just that. We receive life. He says you have been made alive with him. So we've been made alive with Christ, which is the result of having the circumcised heart, the new heart, the heart of flesh that Deuteronomy and Jeremiah 31 promised, a heart that knows the Lord, that loves the Lord, and that follows the way of the Lord. And we don't just receive forgiveness. We don't just receive a new heart. But we're made the circumcision, which means we're made the offspring of Abraham. We're made the offspring of Abraham. In Christ, united to him through faith, the tr- he being the true offspring, we become the offspring of Abraham. So how does Abraham become the father of a multitude of nations? Through his offspring, Christ, bringing all the nations to him. And in him, we now have all the promises of God. All of those unbelievable promises. We have them being brought into the covenant with the unmatched God and his unbelievable promises. And what was the end of that promise? What was the goal of that promise? That God would be ours and we would be his. And that's what Jesus did. Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul testifies to this when he's standing abandoned before Caesar. He says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And scripture ends, not with some people of the Lord, but with all of his people, all of the children of Abraham. In Revelation 21, the most beautiful picture, our blessed hope, it tells us that John saw in the new heaven and the new earth and he heard a cry. And what he hear? Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Through Christ being cut off, we're not just brought to him, we're not just saved, but we receive these promises and we are brought to God. We get God and we get to be with God. How deep is the love of our Savior? He offered himself to be cut off from the Father, to be forsaken by his own Father who loved him and cherished him, to be crushed under the wrath of God for the curse of the uncircumcision, our faithless hearts, and to be cut off from life, to be put to death, so that he may purchase for himself his people, giving to them new hearts, 
the circumcision, a heart that knows God and a heart that loves God and the promise to be God's forever, to be God's people forever. In Christ, we receive the sign of circumcision. It's so important to see it is jeopardizing the promise. It is symbolically saying it's not my way because it's through God's way that we're brought into it. We receive God through Christ's circumcision. So what does this mean? To those who are not in Christ, it means two things. It means look at the cross. See what the uncircumcision is and what it costs. It is being forsaken. It is sobering when we ponder the cross and the punishment for not having a heart that trusts the Lord. But it's also an allurement. Look at the cross. It hurts and it heals. It draws us near because it's through the cross that you can have the heart that loves, obeys, and follows the Lord. Come to him in faith. Don't look to your plans anymore. Don't look to your power. Don't look to your reason and your ability to understand. Come to him by faith, receiving his death as your payment and his life as your life and receive the heart that draws you and seals you with the Lord. And to those who are in Christ, it means look at what Christ has done. Just look at him. Look at, his un- look at your unmatched God. The God who death itself could not overcome and the God who death itself will not keep you from. That is your God. He is God Almighty. And it is God Almighty who makes and keeps his promises so far that he sent his own son to keep that promise. Look at your unmatched God. Look at the unbelievable promises. He hasn't just said He's kept and he's made and he's sealed in Christ. And remember what he's placed in you. He's given you a new heart. He's given you the mark of the true circumcision. He's given you the ability to follow him with unreserved obedience, which is where we end here with Abraham. We've seen Abraham. He's heard all these promises. He's heard the unbelievable promises of God. He's received the instruction for the uncomfortable sign, the sign that costs him a lot, that requires his heart to truly trust in God to take and to follow. So what's he going to do? Well, his faith, as it seems to be true, means that he can follow with unreserved obedience. Look at verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, And all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. In verse 23, what's emphasized? That very day. It's actually repeated again in verse 26. That very day. And as God had said to him, How does he do it? Exactly how God said to do it. When does he do it? Exactly when God said to do it. He doesn't wait. He doesn't mull it over. He doesn't consider it. God speaks. God leaves. Abraham obeys. So Pastor Dan, a few sermons ago, I don't even remember what sermon series it was. It was a long time ago. 
He talked about the way he talks about obedience with his girls, which I think he took from Daniel the tiger, but I now use as well. What is true obedience? True obedience is right away and all the way. Right away and all the way. Abraham's obedience is right away and all the way. He doesn't mold over, he acts. He doesn't consider maybe there's another way to do it that doesn't hurt as much or is easier to do or maybe Ishmael can still be. No, he follows God's plan and he does it as God said to him. He doesn't hesitate, he doesn't qualify. Abraham responds to the instruction of his unmatched God who has made and can keep unbelievable promises with unreserved obedience even when it is an uncomfortable sign to receive. So friends, as we leave this text, I hope that we see what this text is showing, that it's not our power, it's not our might, it's not according to our plan that we obey the Lord, but it's built upon who He is, what He's done, and what He has made true in us. Our obedience is made possible by our unmatched God and his unbelievable promises. Our obedience is made possible because God sent Christ who obeyed to the point of death on a cross to bring us into the covenant community. Our obedience is made possible because he's given to us what he promised, the true mark of being in covenant with him, a circumcised heart that loves him and follows him. So we can cut off sin in our life. That one sin, those sins, it may be uncomfortable to cut it off. It may be uncomfortable to confess it. But we can put it to death because our unmatched God has kept his unbelievable promises, uniting us to our Savior in his death and resurrection so that we can do the uncomfortable obedience, and follow with unreserved obedience. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for Genesis 17 as we have walked through this confirmation of your covenant with Abraham. We have seen, Father, how you are God Almighty. You are the one who didn't just create all things, but you are the one who can make these unbelievable promises and you can keep them because who you are and what you have done in Christ. And yet, God, it is not just that you are God Almighty, but you are a personal God who's in relation with us through these covenant promises. And because of who you are and out of your love, you have made and kept them and secured us in your promise. You have given us life and hearts that can trust you, your plan and your way. And so, Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us walk before you as you have made us to do with unreserved obedience, trusting, looking to you, our unmatched God, and his unbelievable promises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.